If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie show where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Molasses has served as a baking ingredient, condiment, and cold remedy, and it was central to special occasions in the Americas. We can draw on a range of sources, including travelers' accounts, autobiographies, community studies, and WPA narratives, and interviews to examine its importance and its changing role in American traditions. Molasses is made from sugarcane, and the similar sorghum syrup comes from sweet sorghum grass. Both crops were probably introduced to the New World during the Atlantic slave trade. Travel accounts tell us that West Africans were familiar with both because women merchants made and sold sweets from these plants. What you're about to hear are excerpts from the African-American experience, Nourishing the Soul Through Music and Food, a panel discussion featuring Dr. Jessica Harris, Dr. Leonard Brown, and Dr. Frederick Douglass Opie. Out of uh, uh, Juve and Carnival traditions uh, down in the Western and Eastern Caribbean. In this particular instance, the Jab Jab represents the enslaved Africans who used to work in molasses. Okay? And the, 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 the legacy is that uh, Jab Jab ultimately really comes from the fact that a number of the brothers who were working in those molasses when they boiled all that sugar actually died in that falling in and things of that nature and were treated very badly and rudely by the enslavers. So as a part of an old, old carnival tradition that goes back 250, 300 years, on Carnival Day, these brothers would dress up and say, they said their point was, if you don't like me because I'm black, I'm gonna become as black as I can get. And I'm gonna cover myself with this molasses and I'm gonna have these horns because you think I'm a devil anyway, so I'm going to meet all your expectations. I'm going to be the devil. And I'm going to be in your face on Carnival Day. And I'm going to have all kind of music traditions and things that I'm going to create on the spot. Okay? Spontaneous creativity. And I want to be to let you know that we are aware of how you've been treating us. And we're going to put this manifestation back in you as a part of Carnival Celebration. When Jab Jab happens in Carnival, there's six to seven hundred of these black men coming with this incredible rhythmic power. There'll also be uh, Dombala is representing that because there'll be uh, snakes and other things. The point we're just showing these, these couple of clips in contemporary times is how much these traditions still manifest today. They're not old and forgotten about. They're much, very much a very significant part of how people see themselves in Afro-Caribbean communities today. There's a majesty to, to African-American culture, and the music is directly related to the fact that we were able to survive all this horrific situation and come out reasonably sane this year and then make these incredible contributions to world humanity. I'm going to rift a little bit on, uh, on, your, on your last video, which I thought was extremely interesting. Um, I had the opportunity to travel to Colombia. Uh, the island of San Andreas. I don't know if you've been there. No. But the island of San Andreas and in, uh, in Colombia and South, South America, which is an island off the coast of uh, 
of Colombia. It was a sugar enclave. It was where sugar was produced there. And when you get off the plane, you feel like you're in Jamaica. There's a large percentage of the population that historically were um, enslaved people that came from West Africa, some directly from West Africa, but some also indirectly via the, the Caribbean and then came to Colombia to, to Colombia and then were put, put on the island of San Andreas to produce sugar. I'm just thinking about that as you were talking, the interaction between uh, what people do when they don't have traditional instruments, what people do when they don't have access to express themselves uh, except for special occasions like carnival when you actually have the amount of food you can eat. And there, were, there were three things that came to my mind when you were talking about molasses. I, I did a, an article on molasses a while back and it was called uh, Molasses Glasses. And it was a way of looking at food history through the lens of molasses. And I started the, that, that particular piece off <coughs> on uh, West African market and women uh, that worked in those markets. And you have a description of women coming to those markets very early in the morning with bundles of sugarcane that were cut up. And, and I think sometimes that we think that the first time Africans were introduced to sugarcane were on the plantation in the Caribbean and other parts of the Americas, but no, they were introduced to it, and many of them sold it uh, as entrepreneurs in their markets. So you have the description of women making these sweet products uh, from the sugarcane. Some of those products were then fused with things like uh, nuts or with coconut and things like that. So here I am, I'm, I, I wrote that piece, I remember that piece, and you have these description of these women walking throughout the market with these uh, these platters of these sweets on their on their hands or balanced on their heads, and they're selling them to make money for their families. Then you go to the Americas, and you'll see the same thing with women carrying around these sweets, dulces in Latin America, they will call them, from the Dominican Republic to Brazil to Havana. You'll see these women carrying around. Now these are enslaved women, and many of them are making these sweets with the basis of a being molasses and then uh, fusing them with the same kind of greens I, men I mentioned. And they're selling them as a way of slowly but surely <coughs> accumulating capital to purchase their own freedom or freedom of a loved one to using food. Now, fast forward to 2009, I think it was, when I was in San Andreas, and I'm on the beach of San Andreas, and who comes walking down the beach? but a woman with one of these trays on her head with the same type of sweets and the basis of it is molasses which keeps these things together. It was just a, it was a tremendous flashback uh, for me when I thought about what I had been reading and to see that there's a continuation of this entrepreneurial spirit of black women and the use of the, some of the same ingredients that come out of the enslaved experience as well as the free experience of uh, people of African descent. Now, when you go to the U.S. South, another time you see molasses are descriptions of what they call molasses pulls, where people will create, uh, basically taking the molasses, boil it down until it's a, a candy substance, and then you would typically, it was, there were two ways you would see it. The children would obtain a piece of, uh, of this gooey substance where it was cool enough for them to actually handle with their bare hands. And they would pull it back and forth as a way of making the candy to the point where they could pull off small pieces. Mm -hmm. But it also became a courting game where uh, if you were interested in a young lady or young man, 
you, know, you would have the molasses pull between these two individuals. And it was a, a courting ritual that you also see in the South. And then the other thing that you see, and I see these descriptions more again after the end of slavery, 1865, is very much we're familiar with uh, hog killing days. But there were also molasses processing days where molasses was produced as a subsistence crop, not a cash crop, but a subsistence crop. And it was one of these community-wide events where everybody in the community, white and black, very often would come together, they would harvest the sugar cane, and then they would process the sugar cane, boil it down. And one of the ways of saying thank you to your neighbors for, for participating in that process was you would take home a big tin can full of molasses. So all those things came to mind when you were talking that I just think it's interesting. So often when we talk about black history, we stay in the enslavement period as though the experience of people of African descent was a, a, an experience strictly of slavery, that life began with slavery and ended with slavery. So want us to think about uh, black history in a more comprehensive as well as global um, manifestation or discussion. Uh, I've actually been attacked by a jab melas. <laughs> okay, and those molasses coated gentlemen are not just dancing in the street having a ball, they're threatening. They come to you and embrace you, and molasses, if you remember, is sticky, <laughs> not pleasant, and you really don't want to be hugged by one of those guys. Not to mention they've been dancing around and are funky beyond imagining. Okay. So, I mean, here's the trick. This is, this is reality. This is a day-to-day -day thing. So, um, it's about those kinds of connections. When you look at Boston, to me, it's not that much different than when I look at the food culture of New York, because the people of African descent here, I mean, I, how many people here, your family, your, your people are from North Carolina? Raise your hand. Look at that. All right. Virginia. Any Virginia folks in here? Alabama? Kentucky. Alabama? Kentucky? Kentucky. Georgia. Georgia? I mean, so... It's not like when our, when our people came here, they left the food back where they came from. They, they brought that culture with them. Now, there'll be some things that happen and change, and uh, certainly I talk about that in my work. Jessica talks about it. When you migrate, what happens? You adjust, you change. Uh, now, my wife, who's here, she's from Virginia. Um, now, I do most of the cooking in the house because I like to. That was my prenuptial. Will you let me cook? Okay? But... My wife cannot stand my cornbread. Why? Because I'm northern born, and northern cornbread tends to be what? Sweet. sweet. And wrong. for. Not sweet, wrong. Wrong. She <laughs> did. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, that's, but that's the reality. Like you talk about changes. So most of people of African descent, you know, not that, you know, my grandmother's one generation, both my grandparents born in the South. So I'm growing up in New York, but you go to her house, I was like going to the diaspora, you know. And I went to an event where my mother was honored. And I'm going to tell you, there was maybe this many black folks, maybe more in the room. And come to find out after talking to people, everybody in the room was from Windsor, North Carolina, which is where my grandma was from. So, you know, those things, when you have a, a gathering of people from the same area, those food influences are going to come. But certainly, when you get people come from different states to, to a Boston, the definition of soul food is going to have what we call a, a, a creolization, a mixture 
of many things. And when they come together, they're never the same. So I think that's part. But you also have a large percentage, at least I found this out, of uh, West Africans here. So soul food here, same thing in New York. You know, the, the class of Victorianist in New York a couple years ago, I don't know if it's like two, three years ago, was an immigrant from West Africa. So those influences happen here. Then you also have the Caribbean community that's here. So soul food means different things depending on where you are. I do think, uh, I don't know who has done research on that, but I think it also goes back to what Jessica was talking about. Are the sources available? Now, we also know that there's always been a, a large contingent of the nation of Islam here. So how is that affecting people's food? So you may not even be a member of the nation, but you can be influenced by what they say and, and the respect you have for them may affect your desire to eat pork and not eat pork. So this it's a complex thing. If I'm a graduate student sitting out there in the audience, I grab that handle yeah. and try to see if there's some documents out there for sure. But just to add a little coda to that, there's also an earlier tradition in not necessarily Boston but in Massachusetts. Because don't you know, don't everybody didn't come here. Yeah, you know, yeah, as, yeah. as they say in North Carolina, uh, not North Carolina, in Charleston, you got the Ben Yes and you got the Come Yes. Yeah. Okay, but the Ben Yes, <laughs> the Ben Yes had their own food ways, and you get things like Joe Frogger's in Marblehead. Okay. Okay, Joe Frogger's uh, molasses cookie, done by a black man huh. in Marblehead, um, became so popular, actually, some of them got shipped to Queen Victoria. Wow. Okay. So, um, so there are those kinds of traditions. I mean, the in New York, where I'm from, um, oyster traditions and oyster houses in the 19th century, run by black men, particularly who were oyster men who created their own oyster beds, who prepared the oysters, who were noted for their skill with creating, maintaining, serving oysters, and in some cases preserving them. Again, Queen Victoria ate a lot of black food. Um, and, and things of that order that, that would then take it back even uh, a century or so to then talk about some of the indigenous, if you will, northern food ways as opposed to maybe the southern ones that we tend to research more. Can you help us to uh, to explore soul food versus daily food? Soul food, if you were to go back and look at uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century, were the foods that people had access to, free or enslaved, on special occasion. It wasn't everyday food. Uh, staples were the plain dishes. I'm, I'm teaching a course on race and ethnicity now through the lens of food. And we were talking about, you know, how do you know what has status? Food does indicate status. So I, I had the students put up on the board the different foods that were discussed. And in this case, it was the example of the Aztec, Inca, and the Maya. And we looked at the food. Potatoes is one of them. And then I said, well, here's the food, chocolate, another one. So tell me, was this a food that nobles ate or a food that commoners ate? And some of the foods, it, were, it was both, nobles and commoners. Well, then how do you know who had status? How much potatoes did you have on your plate? How were you able to cook the potatoes? 
Uh, all those things are indicators. So to me, soul food has always been special Cajun food, not what you eat in the norm. Now, if you look at in contemporary society, why do we have so many problems with obesity within the African-American community and the larger U.S. community? Sorry I had to go there with this one, but I'm going to say it. Uh, soul food has become everyday food where fast food restaurants have made it possible for you to get in it, as one person I interviewed said, I love this term, the eat and gobble lane, the fast food lane <laughs> at the restaurant, and eat on every single day what our ancestors ate on special occasions. Never, to, never mind that when our ancestors, again, I'm just talking, you know, I'm talking about my great-grandfather, turn of the century, you know, anywhere he's going in his small hamlet in Virginia, he's walking. When it's time to cut the grass, ain't no Honda lawnmower. <laughs> He's the lawnmower. You, you know, that sickle. You do that for a couple hours, you're going to burn some calories. So, you, you know, you look at what people ate, the amount of food that they consumed versus as agricultural people, the amount of energy they burned. You know, it, 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 if, you, if you look at it, I remember these sources that I saw on uh, Virginia and around Tuskegee Institute, a study that was done by the U.S. government. The average weight of the people you were looking at, you're talking about a study of two, 300 people. Uh, these are African-American farmers. The average rate of, weight of most of these people are like 145 to 155 pounds. You're talking about men. Did you hear what I said? 145 to 155 pounds. You make me look bad. All right. <laughs> but, you know, but if you look at how they lived, it, it made sense. But on special occasions, you know, 4th of July, Juneteenth, you know, that's when you would have these big elaborate meals that I would describe as soul food. But that's not, that's not your everyday staple. It was the three M's, meat, meal, and molasses. That was, that was the staple. So that to me is what soul food is, special occasion food. We'd like to hear what was it that influenced you to write and document? Yeah, I was working at Gettysburg College and I came across a, um, an article and the article was about the term gatekeepers. And the article's message was, if you don't get the credentials to fill the libraries with information that you consider important, some other gatekeeper will. And the information that you think is important will never get in those libraries. So I, that, that resonated with me. And uh, I mean, I think about it. I mean, there's also, so that, that's an important part of wanting to, be, wanting to be one of those people who could help change what young folks would see when they went into a library, whether it be public library, university libraries as a student. That, that, that meant a lot to me. Then the other aspect um, would be like everybody else, you got to start at home. I'm the youngest of three, so you all know my name, you heard Frederick Douglass. Uh, now, the oldest boy, his name is Randy. Who's he named after? A. Philip Randolph. Mm -hmm. Randolph Lamarck Opie, okay? The middle boy, my brother Marshall. You know who he's named after? Thoroughgood Marshall, okay? And then there's me. So I come from a legacy of what people used to call uh, race folks or race men in the case of my father. Mm -hmm. My father never earned a college degree, but he read like crazy and listen to Pacifica Radio and any other kind of progressive radio coming out of New York City. My mother, she was a recruiter for the NAACP, so she also was very much 
uh, into her culture and her history. And uh, I found myself as I got older, I was totally into sports and didn't think much about history, but I found myself as I got older, my mother handed me, I'll never forget this, she handed me the autobiography of Frederick Douglass and knowing my mother, she's going to ask me about the book. I didn't want to read the book, but she's going to ask me about the book. So I read the book. And it was just, it mesmerized me. So that book led from one to another. And uh, I found as an, uh, once I went to grad school, I started going home and just taking stuff off the bookshelf. And one of the books I took off was uh, Zorno Hurston's The Eyes Were Watching God. Mm. And my, my most recent book I have here, I'm going to be... Uh, uh, signing this afterwards is Zorno Hurston on Florida food. And why did I write that book? Because the eyes were watching God is full of food. Mm -hmm. And once you start doing research in the area of food, you get food on the brain. You can see food in just about anything and everything. <laughs> and so that's, that's pretty much how I see. I started seeing, particularly in food studies, most of the stuff early on were very Eurocentric. It was everything on French history and British history. And it was like all these contributions, these people to hot cuisine. And my question was, well, where are the black folks? So I wanted to explore that and as much as I could uh, write about that as a gatekeeper. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would, would recommend to you. 